that class at this time. And this Sunday, our nursery is in the back of this larger room here in the smaller classroom there. If you're new with us and unaware, uh, every Sunday we offer a fully staffed nursery and a kids class up to about age six or seven or so. And you're more than welcome to use those. And also you're more than welcome to leave your kids right here in the service. That's great as well. Uh, I am so grateful to have Pastor Terry Stoffer. He's going to speak for us here today. Uh, he pastors at Gospel Grace Church in Sherwood Park. And so grateful he's going to bring the word here this afternoon. Uh, there was a uh, preaching workshop in Calgary at the end of this last week that, uh, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 pastors or so from the Alberta area were at. And so kind of what's happened, I think, today is several of us pastors from the Edmonton area decided we were just going to all switch pulpits and uh, make our lives a lot easier so we could enjoy that preaching workshop together and uh, focus on that without having to uh, have the pressure of being ready to go here uh, today. So I already preached this morning, actually, totally different church. And Terry's going to come bring the word to us. And he had somebody preach for him this morning at his church. And so grateful uh, for Terry and many other men in the area that it's my joy to call a uh, friend and brother in Christ. Uh, so Terry will come at this time, open up the word of God to us. Thank you, Terry, for being here. Well, good afternoon. I thought about that. Afternoon. Good afternoon, not morning, and uh, greetings from Gospel Grace Church. Uh, it is a privilege to be here to open the word with you, and uh, it, I agree with uh, Pastor Nate that it's, it's great to have this, this blossoming pastor's fellowship and friendship, and uh, even the opportunity to preach for one another once in a while, and uh, it, uh, it's, it's a real treat. It's a real pleasure to be a part of that. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this morning, or this afternoon, I did it, I did it already. <laughs> this afternoon, this afternoon, we are going to look at the very last verses of uh, Peter's first letter. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon, it's this, these verses sometimes are like the credits in a movie. Uh, we, uh, we've watched the movie, and the movie's done. We even have the, the end, if it's an older movie, which we prefer in a lot of ways. But then the credits run, and, and who cares? We know what's going to happen, a bunch of names we don't know, and all these, what's a grip anyway? You know, we, we, uh, we see all these credits, and we just kind of let them go. And, and the movies we watch, if they're, they're slightly newer ones, will usually be on a TV, and the, the print is even really small, and it goes fast. So it's like they know you're not even going to pay attention to them. Let's not read our Bibles like that. The opening credits and the end credits, they're not credits. They're an integral part of the letter, and they have an important message for us. So with that in mind, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, there's a word that may have jumped out at you there as we read those final greetings from 1 Peter. 
Babylon. Did you notice that? Babylon, that name has so many connotations. It has so many connections with the biblical story. Babylon was a city and an empire, but after it passed into history, it became a byword, a symbol of the earthly powers who set themselves up against God's rule and God's people. Through Moses, the Lord declared that the children of Israel would, not might, but would turn away from him and worship idols and reject his word. When that happened, Moses prophesied that God would cause them to be defeated by another nation and cast out of the land. And after a season, these people would repent and turn back to the Lord. And at that time, God would judge their oppressors and restore them to the land. In the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we read the story of how this happened in history. Almost 900 years after Moses, God is patient. In Jeremiah 25, I'm just going to read a few verses from Jeremiah 25, if you'd like to just listen. Jeremiah 25, verse 8 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants, And against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And God did exactly that. He used the king of Babylon as a sword in his hand to bring judgment upon the nations, including his own people who had rejected him. Listening to the, listen to the opening lament of this psalm of lament by the exiles. It's Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. In his time, God raised up King Cyrus, the Persian, to overthrow Babylon. God caused Cyrus to issue a decree to restore the Jewish people to Jerusalem and Judea right on time. Seventy years, as he had said through Jeremiah. This historical Babylon is a significant part of Israel's history, but Babylon, as I said, became a symbol in the rest of the Bible for future biblical writers. Babylon stands for human power that opposes the rule of the one true God. And as we look at the very beginning of 1 Peter, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, it's not a long book, so back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see how Peter begins the book. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Now that's, if you're familiar with the Bible, Babylon language. It's because of the judgment of God and the exile that the people were dispersed around the earth. So Peter addressed his letter to these elect exiles, God's chosen people who were strangers in a foreign land for a season. And then Peter ends his letter with greetings from Babylon. Was Peter really in Babylon? The city of Babylon was basically a ghost town in New Testament times, just as God had said it would be. Most preachers and teachers throughout church history believe that Peter was in Rome at this time, the Babylon of his day. Rome was a city and an empire, just like Babylon of old, and it was the world's biggest and most powerful empire in history up to that point and really ever. Peter's audience in Asia Minor was as far away from ancient Babylon as we are, for all intents and purposes. Yet they understood the spirit of Babylon that was alive and well in the Roman Empire. Rome was a continuation of Babylon, but what about us today? The spirit of Babylon continues, does it not? What is it? The European Union? China? The United Nations? The United States of America? Is Canada part of Babylon? I don't think we have to choose. Babylon lives on in the spirit of the age through the powers that are hostile to God's people and contradict God's truth. We meet Babylon for the final time in God's word in the book of Revelation where we read that its days are numbered. One day Babylon will fall and the kingdom of Christ will reign supreme forever. We don't have to agree with all the eschatological details that Christians disagree about to agree on that point, that that's going to happen, and if we're in Christ, we win. But in the meantime, I would argue, as Peter did in his day, that we are exiles in Babylon today. This world is not our home, and we should not be surprised when we face opposition for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, let's look back at our verses here. These are the final few verses in Peter, and we have three points from the text today. The Apostle Peter reminds us to be faithful as we live in exiles in Babylon, as we stand in grace, point number one, as we walk together, and as we rest in Christ. I'll give those again quickly, but I'll repeat them as I go through the points. We stand in grace, we walk together, and we rest in Christ. So first of all, we stand in grace. Peter began his letter with grace and peace, and he ends with grace and peace, just as the Apostle Paul did in all of his letters. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We receive peace from God because of God's work of whole life restoration that lasts forever. Both come only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter described his letter earlier as exhorting and declaring the true grace of God. That was his purpose statement for this letter. 
He was conscious that his words were the very word of God, and they brought life and strength to his readers. But a big part of his message has been, prepare for suffering as you follow God's suffering servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, part of my motivation for preaching the last verses is that you might go home and say, I haven't read 1 Peter for a while. I'm going to read the rest of it. And I'd encourage you to do that. But look for something interesting. In every one of the five chapters in 1 Peter, Peter addresses suffering in the Christian life. Peter's call to stand firm in the grace of God is a summary statement of the whole letter. Grace is our standing place. Grace is our standing place as we face the trials and the opposition of Babylon. Peter wrote to these believers in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, to encourage them in the faith as they were being tested by persecution. There are still a small number of Christians in Turkey facing that same hostility from Babylon today. It could be that his description of Rome, as, as I'm taking it, as Babylon is a way of saying, I'm in the fight with you. Things are tough in Asia Minor for Christians, but remember, I'm in Babylon. And at this point, these Christians were in Babylon too. Asia Minor was a part of the Roman Empire. And as Christians, we're still exiles in Babylon today until our Lord Jesus Christ returns in power to establish his kingdom and end all human and spiritual opposition to his rule, ultimately. But in the meantime, we must know the true grace of God and stand in it. This stand is largely a defensive posture. I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but if you, if you go to the, uh, the, the spiritual armor, the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God, what do we do when we put on the armor of, armor of God? We stand, right? It's repeated like three times in a couple of verses there. Our only offensive weapon is the Word of God. Otherwise, we stand in the grace that we learn from the Word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we leave this uh, stand in grace point, I'm just going to make a brief comment on being exiles and, and foreigners because we might hear that and say, well, we should be like the, the Amish or the Hutterites and just, just pull out, just withdraw from community. And some, some days, some days when we hear the news or whatnot or we're at work and it's a hard day, we think that sounds pretty attractive. Let's just pull out with our Christian friends. Let's all move to Belize together or something. This is a big conversation, and it should be, but, but here's some brief thoughts, just, just freebies here. The church as the church must be focused on our mission, and to boil it down, the mission of the church is the Great Commission, uh, to make disciples of all the nations teaching them, everybody who comes to faith in Christ, to obey everything that Jesus commanded. The local church must not be a political action hub. It's to be the church. So in that sense, we are exiles. We're separate. We are ambassadors from heaven. Local churches are little outposts of heaven. 
and we're not about this world's affairs. But having said that, Christians as individuals have a variety of callings and vocations, and praise God for that. We must engage in the opportunities that we're given with the call that the Lord has given. We need Christians as salt and light in every profession, and we should pray, especially that God would raise up more bold Christians in influential positions as politicians, uh, members of constituency boards, for example, uh, or, or, or running for, as an MLA or different positions, school boards, lawyers, teachers, professors, civil servants, as well as plumbers, carpenters, chefs, all the different professions. We should pray that, that we would be salt and light in all of these professions. And the word exiles does not mean that we pull out of culture, but that we recognize which kingdom is which. That's, that's what we're really emphasizing today. So God's grace reaches into every area of life, but the church has a particular calling to defend and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and call his people to holiness in every area of life. That's the grace in which we stand. We stand in grace, but we do not stand alone. We stand together with other believers. Even at the very first word of our passage, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So in a few short verses, we have a lot of different people represented here. Peter's not a lone ranger. He has a community, and he wants the people that he's writing to in Asia Minor to know about this community and how important it is to walk Together. That's point number two. Walk together. Because we are exiles in Babylon, we need one another. Don't you feel that? You know, as our, our culture grows darker, we need one another more and more. But think about what it would be like to come to Canada from another country as a refugee, like from the Ukraine or from Syria or some other difficult place in the world right now. How glad they must be to connect with people from home, other, other refugees from their same country, same language, and they have similar experiences on their way to this foreign place. Now, two points in mentioning that. We should have our eyes open for people like that in our neighborhood so we can love and welcome them. But secondly, it's an illustration of the common language and culture we have here in, in Zion, so to speak, as we gather as a church and we are able to encourage one another when it's so hard and we're so misunderstood out there during the week. After a week in the world, do you feel a sense of community like I've just been describing when you come together? Thinking like exiles, even when we're comfortable in our home country as we've had the privilege of being in Canada for a long time. But thinking like exiles will give us a greater appreciation for other Christian pilgrims that we meet. We should tell our stories to one another and speak the language of our eternal homeland to one another. Peter was a part of a band of brothers. He said that he sent this letter by Silvanus, a faithful brother. This meant that this man, Silvanus, delivered the letter, and he probably explained it as he read it to the churches. 
Imagine the scene as Sylvanus arrived in Asia Minor and met with some Christian leaders, probably from church to church, reading and bringing this letter. Sylvanus arrives and says, Hi there, I have a letter from Peter. And the folks would go, Well, who are you? Well, I'm Sylvanus. Just check Peter's endorsement at the end of the letter. They read the letter and they go, Oh, yeah, okay, great, Peter, super. Go ahead then, we're eager, eager to hear what the Apostle Peter has to say to us. Sylvanus probably read 1 Peter and on a, a Sunday meeting. And you can imagine Mrs. Jones in the front row putting up her hand after he finished and saying, Excuse me, did you say that Peter was in Babylon? Last we heard he was in Rome. Yes, Mrs. Jones, Peter is in Rome. He was urging or using Babylon in a figurative, like a symbolic way. Mrs. Jones, okay, why would he do that? It's confusing. Maybe it's been confusing for you as you've read First Peter. And Sylvanus says, Do you remember what the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of Jerusalem when they were about to go into exile? How they were supposed to go quietly and trust God, to seek the good of the city. Do you remember how the prophet said that this exile was only going to be for a little while and then God would bring them home? Suddenly, The lights begin to go on for Mrs. Jones. Oh, yeah, Babylon means a lot in the Bible, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. That's where we are as Christians today. Life is hard for now, but we stand in the grace of God, treasuring Jesus Christ, and live such good lives before unbelievers that they want to know more about what we believe. It's an allusion from chapter 2. So that's our life together in Canada in 2022. We are exiles, but we're also ambassadors for the king. And we need one another to do our work of promoting a better kingdom. Sylvanus had another name in the New Testament. That's part of the confusing thing about studying the New Testament. Matthew, Levi, Simon, Peter, even Simeon sometimes. We've got here Sylvanus, Silas, same guy, Paul, Saul. So we we have to have a bit of a program to, to keep up with some of these guys. But Silas is shorter, so we can call him Silas. Silas not only helped Peter, but he helped the churches of Asia Minor and brought the very word of God to them through men like Peter. Peter also calls out Mark as his son in the faith. That too would be a useful endorsement for Mark as he carried out his ministry among the churches. More on that in a moment. So Peter mentions Sylvanus, Sylvanus, Silas, and, and Mark And also he sends greetings from she who is at Babylon. You might think, is that his wife? Well, I think we're to understand that as being the local church, the Christian community there in Rome with him. Peter was a partner with God's people. Let's go back to Silas for just a moment. In Acts 15, in the account of the Council of Jerusalem, Silas was called one of the leading men of the church, and he was entrusted to deliver a letter from the council to the churches. The second man Peter mentions is Mark, and this is the same John Mark that was a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas. There's an interesting account at the end of Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem council chapter. You can look at it if you want while I'm talking, just to be a good Berean and check me out. 
but in Acts 15, 36 to 41, you see that there was a, uh, a falling out between uh, Paul and John Mark, and really Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So they had such a, a, a severe falling out that Paul went with Barnabas on his missionary journey. Or sorry, Paul went with Silas, same, same fellow Silvanus here. And then Barnabas uh, took John Mark, and they went off in a different direction to do ministry. We don't normally tell that part of the story when we marvel at Paul and Silas singing hymns in prison in Philippi in Acts 16. That's not the end of the story with John Mark and Paul. The end of his last letter, Paul said to Timothy, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. This Mark is the same man that wrote the Gospel of Mark, probably using Peter as a primary source. Mark may have had a blot on his record, but God did not cancel him. And there seems to be a a reconciliation between Paul and Mark later on. We are called to walk together with other believers in mutual love and encouragement, but it won't always go smoothly. It's encouraging to hear about the apparent reconciliation between Paul and Mark, and we should see the significance of Mark's ministry as an associate of Peter as a gospel writer. Peter calls Mark my son, which probably means that Peter led Mark to the Lord in the first place. But Peter and Mark had something else in common. They had both failed in their walk with the Lord. Peter's much more severe than Mark's from what we know. And they both knew what it was to be restored. That also should be an encouragement to us. I love the fact that between the lines and these final words, we see an expression of Christian unity. Not only did Peter highlight individual partners in ministry, he also encouraged many Christians by the examples that he chose. Peter wrote this letter to a bunch of churches hundreds of miles away from where he was living. He shared a common faith in the true grace of God with these Christians, most of whom he probably never met. More than that, we have this letter preserved for us in the words so that we can benefit from God's wisdom from Peter 2,000 years later in Beaumont, Alberta. Talk about an extended community. Peter sends greeting from she who is chosen. She who is likewise chosen, he says. That's solidarity. The Christians in Peter's local church were no less chosen by God than the Christians on the other side of the Mediterranean. No less chosen than we are today if we are in Christ through faith in the gospel. We are one, even with them. Why the emphasis on chosen? Well, for the glory of God. The beginning of the letter, Peter said that God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God did it. If we could take any credit for our salvation, we would. And that would rob God of the glory of his rich and free salvation in his son. We can have unity because we rally around the standard that God did it. He has chosen us to be together. The defining characteristic of Christians throughout time around the world is that God saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. 
It's wonderful to consider that we're family with Christians around the world and with saints who have gone before us to heaven. But do you know what's even better than that? Our little local churches. That's where the true community is, and that's how Christ designed it. We can walk together in love when we are in community. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. I hope that command has legitimate expressions in other cultures. And I trust that it does. I know that it does. What it is, though, is a warm, personal, and close greeting. Uh, my wife, Juanita, and, we're here, we're, uh, uh, and I were here about a year ago, just over a little, little over a year ago while we were between churches. And uh, you folks welcomed us in. There's a lot of faces I don't recognize. Some of you I, we didn't get to know because it was a short time. But even here, we got very warm greetings because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we've met before or not. And that's a wonderful thing. Whether it's through uh, a big smile and a warm handshake or a hug when it's appropriate, Peter's calling us to physically express our love for one another. One simple way we do that is by simply showing up regularly. That's a physical act, isn't it? Just getting here and being here to encourage one another. One commentator I read uh, called our physical expressions of love embodied theology. And I like that. And I think we should think that way as we gather together and encourage one another. Again, a smile, a warm greeting, a listening ear, a warm encouragement because we share Christ together is a wonderful blessing from God. So if you're feeling weak and doubtful in your faith this morning, don't despair. God is for you. There's good news for you if you'll look up and receive God's grace and stand there together with other believers. So that's the two points. Standing in grace, walking together, and thirdly, rest in Christ. If we accept, and I don't ask you to accept my thesis necessarily, be a good Berean, argue with me if you disagree with my application of Babylon here, that's all right. But if we accept that we are exiles in Babylon today, even with our freedom and prosperity in Canada, then as exiles, we're going to long to be home. Peter's last words are peace to all of you who are in Christ. The two little words, in Christ, are some of the most important words in the Bible. Through Christ, we have peace with God. And how does that work? We can rest in God's love even when we deserve God's wrath if we are in Christ. If we have accepted that He is for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come to live and die for sinners. In our place, he has lived a perfect life that we could never live and died an innocent death as our substitute. Justification has two halves. I talk about it as the two halves of a sphere. On the one side, we have forgiveness, but it's only half a circle. We're not, we're not going to be good enough if we have a blank slate because we're going to mess it up again right away. But Christ, by his righteous life, grants us his righteousness, that gift of righteousness, to make us whole and complete, forgiven and counted righteous through faith 
in the one who is righteous, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are Christians, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that personally, sincerely, in Christ? That's Galatians 2.20, by the way, if you're taking notes, Galatians 2.20. We believe what Peter wrote earlier in this letter, which you're going to read later today sometime, right? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's 2.24. Peter did not just say peace to all of you as some throwaway farewell. It's not just the credits at the end of a movie. This piece is deeply theological. Peace with God because we are in Christ is the heart of the gospel. This peace is the life, the whole life, shalom. Abundant life promised by the King of Kings. Our peace with God, our justification is for the purpose of reconciliation with God and adoption into his family. J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. A traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I love that. In conclusion, Peter addressed his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he's writing to Christians. And he ended it with the blessing, peace to all of you who are in Jesus Christ. It's hard to be in exile. But by the time we get to the end of the letter, it turns out that we are home after all. Christ will be our home. It all depends on our perspective. From the vantage point of Babylon, we are exiles. But who wants to be a part of Babylon anyway? Right? From the vantage point of heaven, we are home, safe, secure, and confident in our standing before God. And even in the world. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? He is sovereign, he is good, and in Jesus Christ, he is for us. Now back in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11, 1 Peter 2, 11, he writes, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are exiles, right? According to Peter. But I'm going to end with a quote from Paul, from this other in Christ perspective, where Peter lands as well. So Peter and Paul are in agreement about this. 
So Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to read a few verses. And Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, Gentiles and Jews in this context. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So are you exiles in a foreign land or are you children at home? Depends on how you look at it doesn't it? But I want to leave us, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, I want you to leave here with the sense that being exiles is a privilege as you are ambassadors of the king and have a different perspective, a different look at the opposition and hostility that you'll have in the world around you because you have peace with God in Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's pray.